Welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie. And Arthur White. With Michigan Opera Theater. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we celebrate Pride Month, a talk about LGBTQ stories and representation in the performing arts. We'll be joined by two special guests, Michigan Opera Theater's Artistic Advisor for Dance, John Tabison, and composer, Ricky Ian Gordon. Today's podcast is something a little different for us because although, of course, we'll be talking about opera, we're also bringing dance into the conversation. MOT is unique among opera companies in that, along with producing a full season of opera each year, we also present a full season of dance. So I'm really happy to be turning our attention to the dance world today, too, as we look to uplift and celebrate LGBTQ lives and stories. I've had the wonderful opportunity to take part in lectures and presentations and other settings that focus on queer history and stories in the performing arts. And sometimes I preface my remarks with a little bit of seemingly unrelated history, and I'm also going to do that today. I wanna bring to mind the English settlement in Jamestown, Virginia of 1623. And the reason I wanna start there is because that year marks some of the first recorded history of LGBTQ life since the arrival of European colonizers to what would become the United States. In that year, Richard Cornish of Virginia was put on trial for homosexual acts. Then about 25 years later in 1649, Sarah White Norman and Mary Vincent Heyman are charged with lewd behavior in Plymouth, Massachusetts, believed to be the first conviction for lesbian behavior in the burgeoning United States. Though I hate to establish any community's history within the context of their persecution, I start with these documented examples to reinforce that queer culture has always been in existence. LGBTQ history in America and elsewhere does not begin and end with Stonewall, although of course that was an important and seminal moment. We're not often taught gay history or given the opportunities to engage with that history, but I think it's important to emphasize that gay history is American history and gay history is world history. LGBTQ folks have always existed and their lives deserve an equal place in the stories we share. So as we talk about stories and representation, Arthur, um, I want to ask you the same question that I'll pose to our guests. What was your first experience seeing LGBTQ stories depicted on stage, and what was the impact for you? Um, I would say I would go back to 1989. I was uh, born and raised in Chicago, and the playwright Terrence McNally um, had brought uh, brought one of his newest plays called Lisbon Traviata, uh, about uh, a group of gay men, um, just a cu- couple of them are coupled up, so in relationships, but it's kind of centering around all their love for Maria Callas. Uh, and then what starts, what it sort of starts out as a sort of a funny little, you know, all the you know big opera fans, because I was a big opera fan, of course. Uh, but unfortunately, it turns rather tragic at the end. And so, but opera kind of weaves all these different lives together. Uh, and so, it was the first time I had ever really seen. Uh, you know, my lifestyle, <laughs> you know, my, my, you know, my world kind of represented someplace other than, you know, maybe in the community, but to actually see it on the stage was quite amazing. And I remember thinking for just a moment, wow, is this even allowed, you know? Wow. <laughs> so, uh, so I loved it. And, uh, and of course it just, you know, it just kept going on from there. Yeah, we, we have something in common. I, I um, This is actually the first time I'm hearing you say this, Arthur. We've talked about so many things, but I haven't ever asked you this question before this podcast. 
Um, but Terrence McNally for me was huge too. You know, um, his play Love, Valor, Compassion was one of my first experiences, um, you know, also seeing gay life and gay characters depicted on stage. And it was such a beautiful play. And then later his play Corpus Christi, I, I was enraptured by it. I thought it was just this, you know, this amazing representation. And I think Terrence McNally has done so much to, um, to make gay life visible, you know, through the performing arts. But yeah, there were many strings to his bow, weren't there? Definitely, for sure. And, you know, and in kind of a strange full circle moment, my very first experience um, with seeing a gay character or gay life uh, depicted on stage was in a national tour of the musical A Chorus Line. Um, mm. I saw that musical when I was in middle school, and it was the first performance I saw at the Detroit Opera House right after it opened. Wow. Um, so I'm kind of dating myself here. I was, in, I was in middle school when the Opera House opened, reopened in the 90s after all of Dr. D and so many's uh, work. And uh, yeah, he, he, they brought in a national tour, this tour, and the character of Paul, um, you know, stepped forward in the second act and has this beautiful monologue about his life and his experience and his parents discovering that he's gay. And, um, and I just found it so shattering and so completely moving. Um, I will just never forget that moment. Wow. It was, uh, it, you know, this, uh, the time I saw this play, you know, that late 80s was just a crazy time. It was at the time, of course, the height of the AIDS epidemic. So there was just a lot of um, uh, just, it was like the world was upside down. I guess kind of like right now, <laughs> yeah. the world we're living in right now. But it certainly <laughs> everything felt very upside down and very unsure and uncertain. And what's the future? But I guess, I guess that's just the way life is. Huh? <laughs> right. And I think out of that, there was really, you know, an explosion of storytelling. You know, I mentioned Terrence McNally, but also the musical Rent was a big one, you know, seeing LGBTQ folks and LGBTQ folks of color. You know, Terrence McNally is a great playwright, but his experience is very, um, you know, he writes a very white experience. And so to see, you know, a diversity of experiences in the musical Rent was really huge. And I also remember very specifically, since we're talking about dance today, um, Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake, which, mm. um, you know, John Tavis and I know we'll talk more about, but it's kind of this gender-bent Swan Lake and the Swan Corps as um, male dancers instead of female dancers. And to my young mind, I thought that was, you know, just an incredible, incredible production. Wow. Yeah. So I guess speaking of dance, let's get right into it. We have uh, a wonderful guest today. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, John Tapeson? We are thrilled to welcome this guest to the podcast. He hails from West Virginia, uh, but a chance performance of Swan Lake with the Houston Ballet at the age of 19 changes the course of his life forever. He completes his advanced studies at Stanford University, and he spends the next 40 years in the world of dance. Uh, as an administrator, producer, and company manager with some rather prestigious companies, American Ballet Theater, the Joffrey Ballet, Dance Theater of Harlem, Ballet Arizona, and the New Orleans Ballet Association. In 2019, he was named Michigan Opera Theater's Artistic Advisor for Dance. We are thrilled he is with us today, Mr. John Tavison. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So, John, um, I'm going to start a little bit with a personal question. Um, what was your first experience with queer representation in the performing arts, and what was the impact for you? Well, it's an interesting question. It really takes me back because the first experience of that nature for me was seeing a chorus line in the late mm -hmm. 70s, um, specifically uh, the character of Paul and his coming out story, which was heart-wrenching and tender and beautiful. And it was 
a wonderful experience to have in a theater where you felt that everybody in that theater was completely supportive of him and in a very loving and tender way. We have that in common, John. Uh, a Chorus Line was one of my first experiences as well, and um, just such a beautiful piece. But were there others that uh, other productions or performances that you saw that had a similar impact on you? The second experience I had was during my tenure as company manager for Dance Theater of Harlem. And the first major AIDS benefit that was mounted was, I think, in 1987. And it was co-chaired by Jerome Robbins and Mikhail Baryshnikov called Dancing for Life. And many of the New York companies participated. And the piece that was definitely the showstopper of the evening was a male pas de choreographed by Lord Lubavitch. It's taken from a, lo a longer work of his called Concerto 622. But it was the first time I'd seen two men dancing together, uh, same-sex potida, and it was specifically about their relationship as partners, and it totally connected um, with the AIDS crisis that was um, full on at that point in time. So that was an experience that was, again, heart-rendering and um, something that I think everybody could relate to because it was uh, so topical. And it was interesting to see uh, what would traditionally be a male-female pas de deux dance between two men in such a loving and um, beautiful partnership. And again, that was Lars' intention. But... Um, one thing I wanted to add was that I think often when we experience things in the theater or in life, um, we interpret it through our own lenses and we often see what we want to see. Um, a perfect example of that, I'm going to talk about two other same-sex potadas. One is Vicente Nebrada, who was the um, artistic director of the National Ballet of Caracas in Venezuela. I presented them in New Orleans, and he brought a male pas de deux that was called Gemini. And a lot of people who watched that, this dance between two men, felt that it was homoerotic, which was obviously not the intention because the name of the piece, Gemini, it's about twins. So it had nothing to do with romantic interests, but if people wanted to interpret it that way, they could. Uh, another case in point is a female pas de deux by Allison Chase, who was one of the co-founders of Palabolas. And she created a beautiful piece called Duet that is danced between two women. And the, the piece is about a partnership and about vulnerability and about trust. And depending upon your point of reference, you could interpret it as a mother and daughter or two sisters or two best friends or two lesbian lovers. But um, again, a piece is not necessarily designed to be interpreted a particular way, but it depends on who's receiving that um, information and how they choose to interpret it. John, thank you so much. Um, we got the chance to hear a little bit of your personal history in that question. Um, but of course, we know that the dance world more broadly has a long history with LGBTQ representation and experience. And I hope you can tell us a little bit about that. So um, Ted Sean was a major person in, in dance history, and he, together with his wife, Ruth St. Dennis, formed the Dennis Sean Dance Company and School in 1915. 
And Ted was actually a closeted gay man. And at one point, he, after the Denishon Company disbanded in the 1930s, he formed his own company called Ted Sean and His Men Dancers. He also was indeed gay and had a long-term relationship with one of the dancers in that company, Barton Mamow. And uh, Ted Sean went on to, uh, his Men Dancers company was based at what became known as Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival, the oldest dance festival in the country. And uh, during that period, uh, Ted Sean could not be open. Um, and everyone knew that he, well, not everyone, many people knew that he was partnered uh, with Barton Mamow, but it was never discussed. And that is a tradition that has been around for many years. Merce Cunningham is another example. Everyone in the field knew that his partner, his life partner, was John Cage, the composer that did a lot of the music for Merce's pieces, but it was never openly discussed. That secrecy um, is something that Arthur and I have talked about a number of times in previous podcasts. You know, we've talked about the lavender scare uh, with folks not being able to live openly for fear of losing their jobs, their livelihoods, you know, and the fact that so many of these founders um, and and huge figures, both in dance and opera, felt they couldn't live openly um, and really couldn't live openly. It, it, it's just such a um, such a shameful part of our history. We have it even. It's a shameful part of the history, and I'll tell you another example that just came to mind was uh, Nikolai, Alvin Nikolai, and Murray Lewis, who lived together for many years, had their own separate dance companies, and at one point merged them to be the Nikolai Lewis Company. And everyone knew that these two were life partners, but it was never spoken of. Mm. I was just going to add, just thinking back in my own personal journey, although I'm not, not in dance, of course, but just thinking as a, a gay man who came out at the height of the AIDS epidemic, that was a time you talked about, you know, being denied work. You almost, you couldn't admit you were gay because if you were gay, it meant you had AIDS. And if you had AIDS, no one wanted to be around you. So it was a really, that was also another way in which it was, uh, your homosexuality was further repressed because you were just were trying to make it either in your job or your career or whatever it was, you know? Right. When did you start, if I, if I, I may divert a little bit. I mean, when did you start to see that change for you, you know, for either of you, you know, when did you start to feel a shift in that kind of um, consciousness of society? Well, I, I think to some extent, um, you know, we, we've had several star dancers, or I should say we've had few star dancers, but some of them became quite famous. Uh, two of the most famous, or three of the most famous male dancers are, of course, Barishnikov and long before him, Nureyev, and also Edward Villela, who is like probably the most accomplished male dancer of his time, male American dancer. But of those three, uh, Nureyev was gay, and Nureyev was very open about his homosexuality at a time when it wasn't necessarily politically correct to do that, but he was such a star and such a celebrity that no one made a fuss over it. And it didn't hurt his career one iota. Hmm. So that might be the beginning of a shift, but I think that um, the, the there's they're still a huge stereotype. And uh, it's been my experience that a lot of people consider all male ballet dancers to be gay, which um, certainly is not the case. 
I've had several conversations with colleagues and in New York, I think that in some of the major companies, maybe half the men are gay and half the men are straight, which is of course a larger percentage than in the general population. But if you go to regional ballet companies, you'll find very few gay male dancers. Um, I remember working with one company where um, there was only one male gay dancer in the entire company. I felt a little bit sorry for him because he was all by himself. But it was so contrary to the, the stereotype, which has been around for a long time, but I think started to change with Barishnikov. And when people started um, seeing more athleticism in um, male dancing, and there's been an evolution of sorts with male dancing because uh, one of Balanchine's famous quotes is that ballet is woman. And in a lot of his pieces, um, men were um, a little bit window dressing for the women. They were there to partner and they were there to showcase the women. And I think as time has moved on, male dancers became more stars in their own right. And I know at the time that I was working with American Ballet Theater, we were known for our star male dancers. And um, I think Bershnikov really had a lot to do with that. Do you think, John, then, uh, because of where we are now in society, there's, you know, uh, gay marriage now, marriage equality, do you think that there were maybe are fewer boys who are now bullied for dancing? I think there are fewer boys, but I still think that that stereotype is out there in a big way. And, um, you know, we have a couple of examples of that have addressed this issue. One is the whole, the success of both the film and the stage version of Billy Elliot, which was about a young boy in a mining town, a blue collar uh, town where his father didn't want him to dance because he thought it was for sissies. And the boy had incredible talent and the local ballet teacher saw to it that he got the training he needed and pushed him to go audition for a major school where he could have a career. And um, that's a success story. And of course, in that particular story, Billy Elliot himself is not gay, but an important part of that film is that he has a close friendship with another young boy who is gay. So the issue is addressed, even though the main character is not a gay person. And along those same lines, um, we could talk about the um, episode that happened on the Good Morning America mm. uh, telecast with Laura Spencer, who yes. made a big joke about Prince George taking ballet class when he was six and loving it and made some off-color remark about, uh, we'll see how long that lasts, mm. as if he'll, quote, grow out of it. And the social media response to it was immediate. And there was a flash mob type of um, masterclass that went on in Times Squares the next day. And uh, the commentator did a, a big apology a few days later and invited a panel of three male dancers, one from So You Think You Can Dance, one from Joffrey, and one from New York City Ballet, to try and undo the damage that she had done. But um, I think the fact that there was a national outcry for her to make amends says a lot about how far we've come. But the fact that she would make a joke of a young boy who's expressed an interest in dance class is still very telling because um, we, would think, we would like to think we've come a lot further. But it's getting better all the time, I think. 
John, one company that has uh, had a long history in changing gender norms uh, and representation uh, is lovingly known as the Trocs, formerly known as Le Ballet Trocadero in Monte Carlo. Uh, what can you tell us about that company and their impact over these decades? Well, the, the, the Trocs are very interesting because they are, one, so popular, and they started as a small company. Uh, both artistic directors are gay, and the company actually started in gay clubs. And as their notoriety increased, they crossed over to basically general audiences. And it's an all-male company for people who aren't familiar. And uh, half the men are, are dancing in drag as female ballerinas. And it's an interesting company because it's not a case of drag in terms of men trying to look like beautiful women. They are men um, dancing the roles of a sort of somewhat exaggerated caricatures of aging ballerina. But as the company evolves, they actually became incredibly proficient technically dancers, technically proficient dancers. So they, they really still are addressing comedy but they're also, with reverence, paying attention to dance history, making light of some things and having fun with it, but doing serious interpretations of historically important ballet pieces like The Dying Swan, for example. So they do comedy, they preserve dance history, and they reach um, dance audience who really respects them for their technical capabilities. I think it's a great company. Speaking of that gender bending, you know, we talked a little bit about one of your formative experiences seeing LGBTQ representation on stage. For me, one of those productions was uh, Matthew Bourne's uh, gender swap, Swan Lake. And I wondered if you have thoughts about that. What can you tell us about that? And are there other productions like that that dance audiences should look into that either present queer stories or bend traditional stories as we know them? Well, Matthew Bourne is a really interesting example. And even though that piece has been around for many years, it's still talked about. And I just had a conversation with um, a very um, forward um, and progressive director who expressed that he was not a fan of the production because he found it to be homophobic. Mm. And I thought that was an interesting viewpoint um, because... When that production first came out, the big to-do about it is the fact that the corps de ballet, or the swans, instead of being a corps de ballet of women, was a corps de ballet of all men. So it's not necessarily that it was a gay production. They just happened to have um, a flock of male swans as opposed to female swans. But I guess the piece that would some might consider to be gay is that the prince does have an attraction to this um, mythical creature, which is a swan. But since it is, in fact, a creature, one might ask the question, if that creature is portrayed by a man, does that make it a gay creature if there's an attraction between the prince and this mythical creature? You know, what things do you want to make of it? Or is gender even an important part of a mythical creature? So I think it's kind of complicated. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective. I appreciate you sharing it. And I think it goes back to what you were saying before about, you know, our own personal lens that we bring to what we're watching. 
Yeah, we see I what mean, we want to see. There definitely is a very, um, there's a pas de deux in which the prince is dancing with the lead male swan, and the male swan is bare chested and in these feathered pants. So it, it definitely has dimensions of homoeroticism. I wouldn't want to try and deny that in any way. But then again, it's a mythical creature. John, uh, dance has long had a history of being aligned with the LGBTQ identity and activism. And I'm thinking of things like the Harlem ballroom scene to voguing to uh, Paris is Burning, that movie, which uh, I saw, what, probably 20 plus years ago, as well as just the gay dance clubs. Are there dancers and other companies who are today really carrying that sort of history forward? Well, the answer is yes, and um, I have yet to see Paris is Burning. It's on my list, but I hear it's a life-changing film and that everybody should see it. And currently, Netflix has the series called Pose, which is a of the same genre. So there is a dancer-choreographer by the name of Treval Harrell, mm -hmm. who's a gay man of color, and he's best known for a series of work that he did um, entitled 20 Looks. So that's in that same vein. There's also a very young dance company called Mad Boots, whose mission is to explore the millennial gay experience through dance uh, post-AIDS crisis. And not to say that AIDS is not still with us, it definitely is, but we're past that crisis moment. And there's an, another gay artist, a dancer choreographer by the name of Christopher Williams, who has, um, Reimagined queer versions of some of the classics from the Bally Roost days, uh, works such as Afternoon of a Fawn and Lisa Fee. And then there are two other dancers I'd like to um, mention. One is Katie Pyle, who's a genderqueer lesbian dancer and choreographer. She founded a company called Ballets, B A L L E Z, which is a company of lesbian dancers. And her mission is to insert the history of lesbian, queer, and transgender people into the ballet canon through creation of a story. And she's created several full lengths that um, are about the queer experience. And then I, I don't want to live out, leave out the transgender community. The star in dance would undeniably be Sean Dorsey, who's a queer choreographer, dancer, writer, and trans rights activist. And the company is San Francisco-based, but they toured to like 30-plus cities. And um, they incorporate LGBTQ themes into all of their works. And Sean, who is a trans man, is very proactive. And every theater that they tour to, he politely and pointedly advises theaters on how to become more trans-friendly. Um, things as simple as an opening welcome. So instead of saying, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, which sets up things from a binary standpoint from the get-go to say, welcome, everyone. So um, Sean is really playing a, a major role in the, in the trans movement. I'm so glad to learn about all these folks that you're sharing with us, John. And um, Katie Pyle, is, that's particularly interesting to me, her work, because I think, you know, we see subversions of classical stories so often, um, but to tell new LGBTQ stories and new queer stories, I think is so important. And I'm really looking forward to checking out her work. Lastly, John, we'll, uh, we'll conclude. Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, but I want to end with one more question, and that is, uh, what does pride mean to you? I think what pride really means to me is equality and access to everyone. 
And that's an ideal that I think we should all strive for uh, that crosses all identifications, ethnicities, social classes, income levels. It's just about being respectful, respectful of people for who they are. And um, that's something that if we can at least work towards achieving it and hopefully achieve it, we can all take pride in it. John, thank you for that. And thanks for being with us today. Hey, thanks for asking me. As we turn our attention toward opera, there is no doubt that it's been shaped by gay composers throughout the centuries. In 1860s Russia, Tchaikovsky, composer of the opera Eugene Onegin, as well as now beloved ballets uh, like The Nutcracker and Swan Lake, was gay in a time when homosexuality was a crime. Now, he married a woman in large part to divert speculation about his love life, but it was a disastrous choice, making life miserable for both he and his wife. He wrote about his sexuality in letters to his brother, but both his fame and his fear of going against society's norms made it impossible for him to live openly. Despite many primary accounts that discuss Tchaikovsky's homosexuality, the Russian government's long history of anti-gay censorship has kept this truth veiled in his homeland. Other gay composers of note include Leonard Bernstein, Aaron Copland, Francis Poulin, Ethel Smith, Benjamin Britten, and Virgil Thompson. Those I mentioned are just a handful of composers who were gay, but we also want to talk about LGBTQ lives and stories depicted on the opera stage. One of the earliest was an opera called Lulu. Composed by Alban Baer in 1935, Lulu is recognized for having one of the first openly lesbian characters in opera, the Countess Geschwitz, who is in love with Lulu and follows her until her imminent death. It explores the idea of the femme fatale and the duality between her feminine and masculine qualities. After Lulu, we don't see major LGBTQ representation on the opera stage until 1998 with an opera called Patience and Sarah by Paula M. Kimper and Wendy Persons. Patience and Sarah is often called the first mainstream gay-themed opera, and it's based on the novel of the same name by Isabel Miller. The opera made its world premiere on July 8, 1998 at Lincoln Center. The plot of the opera tells of the wealthy and well-educated Patience and the poor farmer's daughter Sarah falling in love and sharing their dreams of leaving Connecticut to go pioneering. Their families prevent their leaving together, and after Sarah's father beats her, Sarah disguises herself as a boy and leaves town. After traveling some time, she returns home, but Patience's brother demands that the two leave his home. They set out to start a farm and a life together. Following Patience and Sarah, it was in the 2000s that we really started to see many more queer stories start to appear on the opera stage. One is Oscar. Theodore Morrison and John Cox's opera based on the writings of Oscar Wilde and his imprisonment for gross indecency. That opera had its world premiere at Santa Fe Opera in 2013. 2016 saw the premiere of As One, considered the first transgender opera composed by Laura Kaminsky and written by Mark Campbell and Kimberly Reed. The work follows the story of Hannah as she goes through her transition, a series of 16 vignettes divided into Hannah before and Hannah after. It's a chamber opera and is written for string quartet. 
2016 was a big year for gay operas, with not only as one, but also Not In My Town, a 90-minute one-act opera based on the events surrounding the death of Matthew Shepard. Shepard was a young gay college student who was beaten, tied to a fence, and left to die on the plains of Laramie, Wyoming. The story has been told in many documentaries and movies, as well as in the now classic oral history play, The Laramie Project, but this was the first time the work was seen in opera. 2016 also saw the premiere of an important work called Fellow Travelers. Fellow Travelers follows a gay romance in McCarthy-era Washington, D.C., during the time of what was called the Lavender Scare. Beginning in the late 1940s and continuing through the 1960s, thousands of gay employees were fired or forced to resign from the federal workforce because of their sexuality. On April 27, 1953, President Dwight Eisenhower signed an executive order which listed sexual perversion as fair reason to terminate employment. As a result, an estimated 10,000 civil servants lost their jobs. In spite of the suppression, many LGBTQ Americans fought back. In 1950, the Mattachine Society began in Los Angeles, formed by Harry Hay, a leading gay activist. By gathering and sharing their personal experiences, the Mattachine founders attempted to redefine the meaning of being gay in the United States, and they devised a comprehensive program for cultural and political liberation. A similar lesbian group called the Daughters of Belitis was formed shortly after Mattachine, and both groups began to sponsor social events, fundraisers, newsletters, and publication. Despite the defiance of the gay community at this time, John D'Amelio, a professor, author, and noted LGBTQ historian, has called this time, quote, the worst time to be queer in the United States. It was at this time in the 1950s that boxer Emil Griffith lived. Griffith was a bisexual man in the heavily macho world of boxing, and his struggle to live and love openly are the subject of Terence Blanchard's opera in jazz, Champion, which MOT had been looking forward to presenting pre-pandemic. But I'm so glad we still get the chance to talk about this opera, Arthur, um, you know, this beautiful piece by Terence Blanchard, because we were so excited to present Champion. And it's a real disappointment that Detroit audiences didn't get the chance to see it. You are certainly correct. As a matter of fact, we were in rehearsals. Uh, Arthur Woodley, who played the elder Griffith and Denise Graves, everyone, the whole cast was there rehearsing. Uh, they had just were about to do their first run through uh, when unfortunately our CEO, Wayne Brown, had to come and tell everyone that uh, we were gonna have to cease production. And it was, uh, it was definitely a heartbreak. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope that there can be, you know, life for this opera in Detroit in the future. And uh, to, to opera fans and opera lovers who may have the chance to see it elsewhere, don't miss the chance to go. Um, it's really a beautiful piece and a, and a beautiful story. One last opera of note we want to touch on is Ricky Ian Gordon's 27. Many Americans fled to Paris in the 1920s and 30s, and it was here that movements in modern art, literature, and music began to take hold. In the visual arts, expatriates Picasso and Man Ray worked alongside the Frenchman Matisse. In literature, major expatriate artists such as Hemingway and Joyce encountered Paris-born literary movements like Dadaism and Surrealism. A cluster of collaborators, including Stravinsky, Nijinsky, and W.C., dominated theater, music, and dance. Creativity abounded, and Paris in the early 20th century became the place for artistic innovation and the cross-fertilization of ideas. It was also a place of liberty for many Americans, sexual freedom away from a more Puritan America, and freedom for some African Americans far away from racial segregation in the United States. 
It's not so much what France gives you, said expatriate writer Gertrude Stein. It's what it doesn't take away. Stein was an American writer who briefly had a career in medicine before following her brother Leo to Paris, where he had settled to pursue a career as an artist. She said, Paris was the place that suited us, we who were to create the 20th century of art and literature. That sounds incredibly egotistical, but it was undeniably true. Stein became a central figure in the Parisian art world, and she helped to launch many careers, including Matisse and Picasso. She was an avid art collector, working with her brother to collect paintings by Picasso, Cézanne, Renoir, and Toulouse-Lautrec, among others. And the Stein Salon was said to have been the very first museum of modern art. Gertrude's home in Paris at 27 Rue de Fleurus became legendary for the salons she would host. Gatherings of artists and writers who came to critique one another's work and discuss the state of art and literature. Gertrude and Alice B. Toklas stayed together at 27 Rue de Fleurus, where Alice managed the home, cooked, and entertained the wives of artists and writers during salon meetings. She was known as a wonderful chef, and her own autobiography was as much a cookbook as anything else. Importantly, Alice also supported Gertrude's own writing. Her confidence in Stein's work inspired Gertrude to carry on as a writer. The two lived together for 39 years until Gertrude's death, and they referred to one another as My Wife. Their love story inspired Ricky Ian Gordon's opera, and its title, 27, is a reference to the home the two created and shared together. The opera's librettist, Royce Vavrick, said, I loved that they had this gay marriage long before gay marriage was legal anywhere in the world. They were not wife and wife, but they lived that way, and that was their truth. Everyone who came into their sphere accepted that, and if they didn't, they were expelled. He went on to say, Stein and Toklas lived unabashedly out loud. Their lives were so colorful and so singular. Their stories needed to sing. And I think anyone who has seen the Opera 27 uh, would definitely uh, attest to the fact that it sings and it sings out loud. You got that right. And we are thrilled to be joined by the composer who hails from New York. He attended Carnegie Mellon University where he studied piano and composition. And he's really distinguished himself as an important writer of vocal music, having produced works for the operatic and musical theater stages, as well as the concert hall and the cabaret with some rather impressive names, essaying some of his works, Renee Fleming, Audra McDonald, Nicole Cabell, Harlan Blackwell, and Stephanie Blythe, as well as many others. He is no stranger to MOT audiences. He brought two of his operatic productions to Detroit, his Grapes of Wrath in 2019, uh, and his opera 27 in 2018, highlighting the relationship between Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. We are thrilled he is here to talk to us. Uh, Mr. Ricky Ian Gordon, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Ricky, I want to start with kind of a personal question. Um, okay. What was your first experience with queer representation in the performing arts? Um, where did you first experience that and what was the impact for you? It was uh, the Gay Men's Chorus commissioned mm. a piece from me and it was during the AIDS crisis. And um, a guy named Perry Brass had written a poem called The Angel Voices of Men. And they commissioned me to write a piece for them. And I wrote it for countertenor. It was, I think it was supposed to be Drew Minter and the Game Men's Chorus. And it was this beautiful poem about all the lost voices, like the, you know, the voices in the sort of ether. And 
I was, it was, it was sort of my first big, like it was my first Carnegie Hall piece, I think. And, and it was openly gay. And it's interesting because at that time, Alex Ross, who has given me very, many nice reviews in the New Yorker, but at the time he was the New York Times and the review, he said, this new generation of openly gay composers feel like they have to bend over backwards to please an audience. <laughs> which I think to this day is obscene and mean. And I've told him, but in any case, um, that was my first sort of taste of, oh, I'm out. And this is a big gay piece by a gay organization. And um, by that point though, you know, when the AIDS crisis came along, you, it was sort of like, that's just how you were identified because, you know, I worked for the gay men's health crisis. You had to step up. You had to serve your community or, I don't know, it was like put up or get out. You know, just in, it was just such a vast, gigantic tragedy that it, 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 I have to say, I'm one of those people that the AIDS crisis sort of identified me. It's, that's what politicized me. And I had to help. So I got a job at the gay men's health crisis. I marched in all the pride parades. I started writing. You know, there was this big thing, the AIDS quilt songbook that was done where all these composers took all these poems about, from this book called the AIDS quilt songbook. And uh, the whole thing ended uh, with a, a song by me. It was called, I Never Knew. And I came out and I wrote the words and I recited the words and then played the song and um, Kurt Ullman sang, but the song started, I never knew when I dreamed of holding all those men that there would be so little time for that embrace or that desire would end in such a way. I never knew. Um, it was very bald and very out there and it was standing in front of a you know packed, Alice Tully Hall audience and saying those things, it was just a moment of pure identity for me. Well, Ricky, can I ask you even a more personal question about yeah. that time? Uh, I know uh, there are two pieces that I have uh, enjoyed very much. One of them, uh, your Orpheus and Eurydice and your other, your Green Sneakers, yes. which I understand both were inspired by the death of a lover uh, to AIDS. Could you talk about that as well? Yeah, but they they came later because because then I met Jeffrey, his name was Jeffrey Grossi, and I met him in the early 90s. And, you know, we sort of fell in love very quickly and right away. And on our very first date, he told me he was HIV positive. And, you know, at that time when someone told you they were HIV positive, it meant they were going to die. There was, you know, no cocktail, no. And um, so our relationship had this sort of, the sort of, you know, Damocles hanging over it. And uh, when he died, it's as if, uh, you know, there was nothing but grief living in me, but not yet a vehicle, not yet a couch. And when Jeffrey died, I became grief stricken for about five years. And um, everything I wrote was about that. So the first piece was Orpheus and Eurydice because while Jeffrey was still alive, Todd Palmer wanted me, he was a great clarinetist who wanted me to write a piece for him and Kathleen Battle because they were traveling around doing, you know, the Shepherd and the Rock. And I had too much to say. I just had too much to say. And instead of writing him a little 
10 minute piece. I wrote him a 70 minute opera where he, he's Orpheus and Eurydice is dying of a mysterious virus. And, you know, I had to tell my own story and somehow I told it through that myth. And then after Grapes of Wrath premiered in 2007, the next year, uh, Jeannie Zuckerman wanted me to be the composer in residence at the um, Bravo Vale Valley Music Festival. And I remembered the, this set of poems that I had written um, after Jeffrey died called Green Sneakers. And it was like, it came to me and I thought that's what I have to do. And it was the same thing. She wanted a 10 minute string quartet and I wrote a 70 minute opera and they gave, <laughs> they gave me a theater and I did it there. So grief sort of cracked me open and all these, these pieces flew out of me out. They were, they were necessary. You know, they were a necessary part of my healing. And I hope in the end, just to, you know, they are, a part of that time and will always represent a time that was really important for a lot of people. You know, I don't, I don't think they are, I hope they are not local, meaning I hope they have more of, I think that, you know, they're done a lot. So I don't think they're only about that period of time. They are, they're just about loss. Yeah, and, and I'm glad to hear you say, and I'm glad to know, um, because I've seen them done before, that these works are so frequently done, because, um, you know, I, I fear a loss of that history. You know, I think that there are, you know, young people coming up who may not know that history, and it's incumbent yeah. on us to share that history. Um, and of course, your work is such an important part of making sure that those stories aren't lost. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, tell us a little bit about the opera 27. How is it that you came to write an opera about these two very extraordinary women? Well, it really all started with, I wrote a, a Civil War opera, sort of opera slash theatrical song cycle with Mark Campbell called Rappahannock County. And um, Jim Robinson called me from Opera Theater St. Louis and said, you know, we want you to write an opera. We'd like to commission you to write an opera for Stephanie Blythe. And when I was young, like when I was at Carnegie Mellon, which I got there pretty early, I left high school and went to college. So I didn't even go to my senior year of high school. And um, I, I read this book when I was sick in college called uh, Charm Circle. And I really became obsessed with Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas and their whole milieu. And mostly because it was... It was like finding someone who I wanted to model myself after. I liked so deeply the life she created for herself. This salon where every Saturday night, important artists and actors and writers came and it was the place to be. All over the world, people knew that the place to be on Saturday night was Gertrude Stein's salon in Paris at 27 Rue de Fleurus. And it, at first it was with her brother, Leo, and then um, it was with Gertrude's lover, Alice Betoklis, who she lived openly with as literally, they called themselves man and wife. But I wouldn't say, that, so when, when Jim said Stephanie Blythe, I immediately thought of Gertrude Stein because I thought Stephanie Blythe is a big person with a big personality and a big voice. And she is by nature a presider. And Gertrude Stein's life was about presiding. So it seemed like the right fit. And it was just one of those destiny moments where it just happened to be that it was also a zeitgeist moment because the topic that every, was on everyone's tongue was gay marriage. And here 
I wanted to write a piece to celebrate what I thought was sort of the most iconic gay relationship of the 20, 20th century. So it all sort of came together. I was going to say, Ricky, with all of these major characters that obviously went through the story, Hemingway, Matisse, Picasso, were you ever fearful that some of those characters might overshadow this personal relationship, which is kind of at the heart of the, of the opera? No, only because they didn't. The truth is, even if like Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Picasso and Matisse and Man Ray, those people may have been attendees, you know, um, at the Salon, but Gertrude Stein was never eclipsed. Her personality was large enough to contain multitudes, as they say, <laughs> and, um, and, and Alice as well. And um, I also knew that the way I was approaching the opera, which I wrote it with uh, the wonderful Royce Fabric, and I, I told Royce what I wanted to write, and I told him I wanted to write an opera that celebrates what I think is just the sort of romance of the 20th century. And it has to be peopled, obviously, with the visitors to the salon. And of course, most importantly, um, it, the ones you have, to, you have to narrow it down. So um, I wanted it to be not only the people I thought were the most important visitors, but I wanted the paintings to sing because the paintings were such an important part of that salon. And it should be Gertrude and Alice and then these sort of three men that would play everybody. And I wanted it to feel like a Fantasia, you know what I mean? These women lived through both world wars as Jewish lesbians in Paris and made it through alive. It's a really interesting story. So, um, no, I never worried about them being eclipsed. I thought, and by the way, if you have Stephanie Blythe at the center of your opera, let's be real. No one's going <laughs> to eclipse her because it's the biggest voice on earth. <laughs> yeah. Well, can I ask you this? Yeah. How do you see opera's place uh, in advocacy and activism, both with the LGBTQ communities and even what's going on today? What is opera's place? You know, I have to be honest about that question, Arthur. I think that if you set out to make a work that advocates or that points, right? Most of the time, I think the work stinks of that. Okay. I think that art, when it is good, art when it is connected, art when it is meaningful, art when it stirs and when it comes from the hearts of the people who make it, Art is by nature advocacy. And if, if writers write stories about gay people that are meaningful and real and moving, then those works are advocates for the cause. And that's, you know, I think that um, ever with everything that's going on right now, right? I mean, the world is just exploding, okay? But I don't think anyone quite knows what to say about it yet as an artist. I think that it's gonna sort of brew and stir and I, I hope great things come out of it, but it's a, a work that sets out to be the spokesperson for the cause often, you know, just smacks to that. You know, when you see movies about gay people, okay, like, can I say one thing you guys? I, I, I a lot of times take umbrage with, when you see movies or plays about gay people and the play is over or the movie is over and you think, 
who are those people? I don't know those people. I mean, I grew up gay. I don't know. I don't know who these people are. Like, can we just write stories about gay people that just make them people, normal people? Why does everything have to be so exaggerated? And I just want to see real stories about real people. And sometimes they just happen to be gay. Yeah. I guess it goes back to what you said when you talked about writing Orpheus and Green Sneakers. It became so, it was so organic. You didn't set out yeah. to write Orpheus. You didn't set out to read, uh, write Green Sneakers. They just came forth naturally or that's the best way to put yeah, it. Yeah. And I even think that, I mean, I think of something like Tony Kushner's, you know, Angels in America. That piece sprang from a rock. I mean, Tony was, he's my age. And he went through that, so which means it was in the dead center of his life. And he said everything he had to say in the midst of this hysterical, awful time in the world. And by the way, hysterical and awful, but also sort of awful and magnificent because we were all so, everyone was so galvanized and had a purpose and we all helped each other. And it was so deep and meaningful too. And I'm sure we, we just felt lost when it was all over too. Not because like the tragedy was over, but it was like, oh my God, that defined my life for so long. I, I'm just saying, I think art is by nature advocacy when it's meaningful and good. Bravo. Here, here. So we are, of course, speaking to you, Ricky, in June of 2020 um, in the midst of Pride Month. And so our last question for you is, what does pride mean to you? What pride means to me is to not hide your light, you know, to be, to just allow your light to shine. Um, it is about, and especially the word pride in this context, so many people, including myself, grew up sort of brutalized and ashamed and afraid to be who they are and to name what they were. And there's a new generation that didn't necessarily grow up as brutalized, so maybe it's easier for them. But the point is, pride in this context is to be who you are and what you are in the world without shame. Um, because otherwise, I hate, the, I hate the, the word pride, of course, when you talk about the seven deadly sins. This isn't that pride. This is the pride of, this is who I am. This is what I am. Take it or leave it. Thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> and I would say, I would just add that if young people today have an easier time coming out and showing their light, it's because of folks like you who made it easier for them to do so, who told uh, your oh, stories you. and who stood strong so that other people could do it. Thank you so much for saying that, Andrew. That's really nice. I mean, I, we end up being, you know, in the end, sometimes people tell you that your work means something to them or something you said means something to them. You never, it's the same thing, you never set out to say or do anything meaningful. You just happen to like explode out there with everything you need to say. And all of a sudden it means something to someone, which is a nice thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us and having this conversation with us today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Say hello to the gang and I'll see you guys soon for my next opera. And thank you, too, for listening to this Salute to Pride and for taking part in our MOT at Home initiative. Keep checking back for more Opera Here podcasts, as well as performances, playlists, blog posts, and more. To find more information on MOT at Home, visit our website at michiganopera.org.
You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again to everyone listening, and we can't wait until the next time we can see you at the opera. Bye.